Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This DevOps Lunch and Learn was a fascinating conversation talking about how we evolve technology in the future. And we centered it on networking, but in a very general way. Because what we kept finding was that the ability for a vendor to distribute technology and then connect things together and then build networks of that technology was a core component that we had to think about in building systems. And that led us into a very dark place where we really thought through who's going to own all of that infrastructure and what their motivations are and how we can make sure that the people's needs and those systems and the vendors needs are well aligned. I think you'll uh, find this very thought provoking. Enjoy. Let's, let's do this. Let's see if we can have a conversation about um, propagation of standards. I'll put it in there and we'll see what, what happens. Cool. Yeah. I was going to say that is a fabulous topic actually, Rob, because it's, um, you, you know, in terms of the areas that I'm focused on, that, that, that is the question is where's, where's the, where are the standards going to emerge from? Because no organization is going to be able to stand up and say, Hey, these are the standards, everybody adhere to it. It, it doesn't appear. And, and part of, part of my motivation for dovetailing it with reInvent is that we're, but you know, there's a, there's a fundamental question. Maybe I'll add it to the, 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 the page. Is is Amazon setting the standards, right? Well, no, because name one of the other major cloud providers that's implemented an AWS API for any of their services. <laughs> or they're, has they're, even they're, been they're able defining, to? They're, they may be defining the core service set at some level, but I would argue that Google's done some innovative things there as well. But no, these are standards within that ecosystem. Sure, absolutely, they own the standards within the AWS ecosystem. But across ecosystems, no way. In fact, the um, the fact that uh, that uh, cloud um, cloud events is uh, you know is being picked up by so many vendors and and you know being looked at so seriously is largely because Microsoft and Google participate in that as a part of CNCF. <laughs> um right and yeah. they're, doing it, being, they're doing it because amazon isn't isn't collaborating to set well, standards there and amazon yeah, has in the past but the person who did that was uh you know has left the the organization the person who was driving that has left the organization since but um but you still see them sort of poking around with it and you know the idea of interoperability across clouds I think what, what it comes down to is everybody in the cloud world is worried about data gravity and keeping data on their platform. So anything that can get data into their platform, they're excited about anything that takes data out of their platform permanently, they they abhor. And so, um, so what they're looking at now is they're beginning to realize that event interoperability is more on the positive side of that equation from their perspective than on the negative side. You get you know, access to more data. Yes, it may be replicated elsewhere, but that data in the context that you own, huh. um, that your yeah. customers own, is, is, um, is positive. Oh. Right? Yeah. The, the, events, the events don't compromise data, the, your, the data gravity. Right. They, so, they, so they actually, actually prove it. 
so in some ways, actually, what you're saying is the way to make money in cloud is data storage and uh, data access. With, without a doubt. You know, ask yourself why egress charges, but not ingress charges, right? Yeah. I mean, it is it is the fundamental business model. AWS was incredibly smart early on. They realized that data has gravity. And they said, so let's get as much data into our organization as possible. We can charge for the storage of that data. But in addition to that, it will bring across, you know, we'll do everything we can to bring across the applications to generate more data. And we'll do everything we can to um, bring across the services that make that data valuable. And that naturally makes those services valuable enough that organizations will want to to transfer over to, you know, to use our cloud. Um, and on top of that, it's a stick. It's the only stickiness factor in a lot of ways. It's not quite true because APIs are also stickiness factor. But um, but it's it is the major thing that makes the company go. We can't leave Amazon because the cost would be exceptional. And and that's also why edge is so freaking important to everybody because that's where the data comes in and gets manipulated in the same space. Yeah, I think I my guess is that reinvent. Um, although I've said this for three years in a row, but my guess is that reInvent something edge-wise is going to shock us all um, because it is where there, there are a lot of organizations figuring out ways to keep data at the edge so that it never really leaves, say, the the branch or the, the store or whatever it is. Um, and so right now, Amazon doesn't have a way to kind of get that initial data generation, they can get the aggregate data that might be sent back into the cloud, but they don't have a way to really be in the store or be in the branch. And I think I would not be shocked if some of the, you know, the existing on-prem Amazon stuff that that's out there um, becomes officially packaged in a way that it becomes a, a great edge story, you know? Yes, exactly. Anyways, it takes you off the networking topic a little bit, but not entirely. No, it's, this is actually it, it is it is the pathway to the networking topic. Exactly, because... it is it is what generates the networking business and the networking problems that we're going to see for the next decade, for sure. Is and, and actually data 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 gravity is right? Just like you have you have positive and negative expressions, right? Data gravity is an expression of networking throughput, right? Or the limit sure. of networking. Yeah. Dave McCrory's um, Dave McCrory's latest equations on this, um, you know, latency more so, or actually no, bandwidth and latency are both a factor in it, I think. Um, but you know, really, the you know the value of the data is the most important aspect. But the next most important aspect is. Uh, you know, that value has a time decay on it. And so the timeliness of getting access to that data is a really important factor of data gravity as well. There's another component here that ties together with our modular modular cell phone, which I would actually describe as modular mobile compute device, that some of what we could actually start to see if you had real real high-performance local networking, like what they described with 5G, you could decouple the screen from the compute, right? Oh. Decouple the storage from the compute. And then all of a sudden, it's not a matter of, hey, my, my phone needs to have these sensors and these devices all crammed together. It's actually, they could be, you know, uh, disaggregated components and you could have your goggles and you could have your sensor, your cameras and all like all those things could be decoupled without wire. Yeah. 
to the extent that you can um, you can live with it if it's not on the network, not you know not being very functional. But I, I would argue that we're mm-hmm. you know I, I don't know if you guys know the the sort of the um, was it the strangle pattern for for converting applications from you know monoliths into to microservices. But the idea is you kind of start with the data services and you start picking apart and pulling out pieces and parts from the data on up to the user interface in order to um, to kind of generate uh, your set of microservices. And that way your app can continue to, the rest of the app can continue to run. It just begins to call out the services. And so in the same way, uh, I would argue that's already happening with our mobile world and our mobile landscape because, you know, how much of your stuff depends on iCloud or Google or whatever it is that you use on the back end now. I mean, you know, I tried to live without iCloud for for quite a while. And in the end, the, the phone is just so much more valuable if I just, you know, give up that data to uh, that central processing piece. And I, I believe that there's sort of, you know, there'll be more and more pieces where, um, you know, they'll they'll keep a usable app infrastructure on the front end, but more and more pieces will be actually running in the cloud. Um, over time, so this this is the dilemma that I I I, I face with this in 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 this in these discussions because whoops, part of part of the reason sorry um, part of the reason that I think the networking is so fundamental here is that the more the more right moving everything tromboning into the cloud making iCloud right it, it's a hub for you to connect to a whole bunch of services. But I, I actually think it's standing in the way of us doing real analytics or real applications that involve multi-sensor data or real, real, you know, analytics or real, real systems. Um, because that 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 thin straw going back to the the cloud is actually the a bottleneck from an application perspective that that we need to break. Well, let me ask you this, or, Rob. So, yeah. do you think there's a because I mean, the way you would deal with this with throughput in a process is you would apply theories of constraint, kind of sure. theory of constraint, kind of activities like valley stream mapping and things like that. So in the network, do you think the industry does a good job of identifying the constraints in the relationship from a customer to you know to the valuable business and data that's behind the scenes? Do they? Does the network industry generally do a good job of identifying those constraints and eliminating them? Huh. No. From my perspective, I, I, no. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I think I think the application developers do a really good job of working or working around the constraint. Um Right, because I, 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 I do, yeah. in like days at Cisco, I do know they spend a ton of money generating bigger and faster routers, right, for kind of the core the internet core systems. And so the internet core doesn't seem or feel like it's a constraint in any way, shape, or form. It does feel I, like I don't, the last that, mile remains the biggest constraint. But I, I think we've got a Jevons paradox issue. And this mm-hmm. is, so mm-hmm. to me, mm-hmm. every time we make you know, bigger pipes or you get somebody, you know, you get, you get people on fiber and now all of a sudden everything's, yeah, yeah, I can, I can push more, more and more bits. Um, you know, we, as it becomes more, more saturated in the environment, then we, we become better able to, to leverage that. 
I actually have an expectation from an edge perspective that if we could actually solve edge networking, and it's not even an, uh, a throughput perspective, it's an operational. I, I see this as an operational problem more than a networking tech problem. Then we could see an explosion of data collection at the edge um, that would far outstrip our ability to ship. You know, you would ne you'd never ship all that data back. Um, which is why it's an operational problem. So, uh, so part of the yeah. operational problem, Rob, is that data data creation collection far outstrips network technology on the small. And back when I was doing mobile, uh, we had some. Uh, I consider him an asshole developer who came in and said, well, gee, instead of using UDP to get uh, uh, this nice compact message packet through and only spend 250K of data to get a month to get tons of information, let's wrap everything in, in SSL and even a single bit of data is uh, 1,200 bytes minimum to get through. And suddenly our ability to do anything became much slower because our straw became extremely constrained compared to our old straw. And so on the edge, a lot of what needs to happen is we need to find secure ways that are, that, wrap securely, but are low footprint so that most of the information go across as data and the data is extremely compact still because we're always going to have more and more data to do more and more complex things. And we're still not going to have the broadcast bandwidth to get them from remote devices to edge cloud or edge or whatever. There's always going to be that straw is going to be the limiting factor of how much we can actually be, how intelligent we can be at whatever point we're at. But but I, I don't see it as, as the total throughput of the system. This challenge to me would be if I'm adding in, if every sensor I add into a system has to connect back to the cloud, right? then definitely the bandwidth through my pipe matters. I also have it. It adds a lot of cost and burden, right? One to my to, to my internet connection, but also to that device to be able to to drop in, you know, sensor. Right? What That's what would it right. look like with if if Alexa, if you could say, all right, I have an Alexa in my house where I'm doing the processing, and I've been able to put. Um, and this scares me, by the way, but I, this would improve the fidelity of the system if I could put, you know six or eight sensors, microphones in every room. And, and, you know, the cost to add that sensor was small, right? Power to do it would be small, or it was in plug, just, uh, you know, a, a shim plug in every outlet. And the networking component overhead on that would be, would be tiny, right? Oh, and the oper and the operational. So in doing that, I also have to do, it has to be, trivial to add each one of those sensors into the system. So low cost, but low user overhead. Now I'm sounding so, like 
this is the way I, I, I played with protocols like this for home automation, where, you know, build a mesh and you add, add sensors, the sensor cost is super cheap and it builds a mesh and all of a sudden now you have a home network. Um, and usually the, the entry cost is start... high. Go ahead, Klaus. I was going to say, uh, usually the, the entry cost is high because you have to buy like the network bridge for, for depending on the technology, what they call it. Uh, and then the, yeah, each, each additional sensor is relatively cheap, but there is the, the high buy-in. And this is where uh, Beth Cohen comes in and talks about the boxes that Verizon and other folks are uh, building that sit there and are essentially the edge cloud for your home. And they're being, uh, the key is, is companies like Verizon and other folks are building at such quantity that those become commodity. And so it becomes a lot cheaper as long as there's some sort of standardization. And I, but I'm not even well. sure they need to be commodities if they were truly useful gateways, right? It, it You know, I might look at if Alexa was a software product that stayed in my house and I controlled what the egress was, I might be much more excited to have that type of an interface for my home than I am now when it's basically I lose control of the data that, you know, I don't have any because of this, that, you know, all that, all that data gets out of my control immediately. So you might and take a look at some of the, uh, yeah, you, you might take a look at some of the, uh, the stuff that the, the, home router systems are doing because those are getting a hell of a lot more intelligent and they might actually provide some of the stuff you're looking for. You just have to write the software around it. The problem is, is that it's going to be outdated in some number of years and you're going to want more functionality in even less years and it won't be backward compatible. The new one won't be backward compatible. That's the problem. Well, the, I mean, you, you you already get that happening these days. Like, I mean, look, look at first-generation Nest products and things like that. So those are essentially unsupported in, anymore. But yep. the, the, the other problem also is that even though there are home router products that can act as a hub, ultimately, the vendors end up uh, getting those through a web portal. Like, look at the, the, the home uh, Wi-Fi mesh systems. How many of those can you actually set up without having to go through their, their web portal? Very few. It got so bad even with my home router. Um, I, I no longer use the web interface on the router. I go through AT&T's web interface, right? Yeah. To access my own friggin' router, which is in, in my house. Yeah. Um, um, smart yeah. thermostats as well. Uh, and, I've got to drop off, folks. See ya. It's, uh, I mean, from from the vendor perspective, it it makes sense because they can sell the, the product as a service. From the user perspective, it depends. If you are an entry-level user or not a power user, it is good enough for you. But... Ultimately, there is a ceiling as to how much you can do with a product that you don't truly own. And arguably, that ceiling is fairly low. Yeah. 
Well, that, that were, it, it's interesting how quickly we get tied back into right to repair and the operability of what, you know, because as a, as a vendor, it drives me nuts when, when somebody's like turning a whole bunch of knobs and then asking for you to help them. And you're like, all right, um, how many knobs did you turn? Why did you turn those knobs? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and then trying to figure out enough to help them. And then the expertise that's required to help somebody through that has got to be insane, right? Um, if I was AT&T, you know, having me go in and configure my router to open a, a porthole or something would be, would be uh, troubling. Yeah. I, I mean, I also understand why vendors do this kind of thing, like the centralization. I mean, it's, it's cost-effective. And instead of, so instead of producing self-contained, self-contained devices, you provide the devices that are smart enough to connect to your central control hub. And there you can do your updates, there you can do your QA without having users complain about failed firmware upgrades or things like that and, and mm -hmm. returning the devices because they don't work for the most part. Uh, it also provides a recurrent revenue stream. Yeah. Well, this is the world we're in, right? Is all SaaS managed managed capabilities, and we're doing that some somewhat for a user benefit, but in a large part, it's an operational benefit because you're trying to, you know, as an operator, you don't want to have, you know, the less heterogeneity that you have in the system, the easier it is to manage. Yeah. Um, I mean, of, the downside, of course, is what we've seen mm -hmm. happening in the real world is. Um, it's much more susceptible to uh, supply chain problems. Like in this case, like network connectivity, uh, compute capacity. Um, like ultimately, I, I worry about this building up to a point where something down in the structure fails that that knowledge thought could fail and then everything comes crashing down. How many people are, how many people can continue their day-to-day lives without their cell phone if say their calendar is no longer acceptable, uh, accessible, if their email is no longer accessible? Yeah. Well, even, even one of the things that I, I saw about with Google Maps is they intentionally make the names of roads smaller so that people don't get you know, used to using roads to navigate, road names to navigate, but instead use, just rely more and more on the maps. Um, you know, I, I, I have trouble seeing that as, as a, as a, you know, sinister, sinister thing. I could see that be like, yeah, just it's, you know, the maps are accurate enough. We don't have to worry about it, but now we're very dependent on the tech. Yep. Well, and that's why I think that the idea that it would all completely move off the phone is is not realistic in part, right? Because, um, you know, in fact, in quite to the opposite, I would expect the network to expand to cover more of the globe, the 5G, you know, whatever to expand to cover more of the globe um, through sat through combination of satellites and ground things first. Um, mm -hmm because that of that reality right if i'm in the woods in you know in the mountains of colorado 
driving through some road that I don't recognize where I am. I've never been there before. The last thing I want is for my map to stop working or for, uh, you know, or if I'm rushing around in subways trying to get to um, to a big meeting. And, and the last thing I'd want is to, to miss the fact that the, you know, the location changed or the time changed or something because my email wasn't working. Yeah, miss your stop because the... Both those yep. things are important. The network connectivity is super important, but at the same time, uh, I will note though that you know even the map stuff relies on GPS, which is global coverage. Um, and it's know, funny that it's a form of networking. So. It, it, it's funny that, that we say that, that like the thing about not arriving on time because the, the meeting time or place changed. Uh, we all grew up with that, <laughs> like back in the in the nineties and earlier. Um, sure. mm-hmm. cell phones were not ubiquitous you used to call someone the day ahead arrange for a day and time and, and, well, and or you'd have to dial into a, a voicemail so you'd arrive and find out something changed or whatever and you have to dial into voicemail or yeah, it, yeah, even then that wasn't ubiquitous and, until the turn of the century yeah no, you're, you're, that's, that's fairly correct Which, I mean I got my first pager thrown on my desk in 97. Um, so, you know, I spent a good probably first six years, seven years of my career without even, you know, without even internet dial up or anything. Um, you know, it was a lap standalone laptop and cell phone and then local yeah. networking to connect to local networking when I got there. Yeah, that's true. But, but at the same time, I guess, um, I would argue part of the reason that we are more dependent is we're more distributed in the way we work um, in terms of mm-hmm. physical location. And so the question is, is it, is that a bad thing? Um, right. I mean, there's pros and cons. There's people can work at home more easily. Um, uh, the idea that even, even like I had a you know friend uh, two doors down, our neighbor um, is a securities um, trader. It's an uh-huh. options trader. And he was there able to do high speed decision making. Um, you know, he one of the first people in the he was one of the first people in the block to get fiber. And he's like, Yeah, it's not quite as good as being in the office, but it's damn close. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's I I I would argue I would that, go. I would argue that the problem isn't so much that we're so dependent on our phones. The problem is that the value of the phone is not universally distributed yet. Um, which I think in part is going to come back to the value of the network. Because so, I would, sure. I would go no, one it, step. It, it's what's dependent. A, that statement is dependent on the network. Absolutely. Because I, w- I would go like one or two steps even further than what you're saying. Because right, what you're describing to me is human efficiency. Right. And some of it, you know, now we're seeing leading to burnout as people never get away. Like, you know, the idea that you would sit and wait for the subway and read a book or a magazine or just sit and think. And now you, you know, it's easy to never get that time, um, you know, is translated to, hey, I'm actually not getting lost as much. I don't spend as much time building travel buffer in or I don't, you know spend an hour waiting for somebody to answer a question for me that when I just needed a quick answer, I can, I, you know, they can interact or, you know, it, it, the whole, the whole system is becoming more 
efficient. Efficient is not always a good thing. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, looking at big societal problems, you know, improving healthcare, health access, improving uh, energy uh, utilization, so that we can improve efficiency, right? All, all of that, the, the, the way that works is because we have these systems that, that interact better, collect more data, or more responsive to sensors, right? They're, they're operating at a higher state of utilization than they did before. And that's good. Right. And the only way we're going to get there is if we can have 100 times the sensor density, which means 100 times the network. You, know, you have to be able to get on the networks and connect things together. Like We have to have 100x improvement for that. Uh, does that make like... Um, I, I guess there's a, that the, the brings up a philosophical question for me is... Um, I, I guess I asked the do like how we've benefited from the technology. It, have we largely benefited and it, are the privacy and control issues uh, mm. like the, the the dark side of, of this technology or has it largely been detrimental and is and are the benefits that we're seeing the silver line? Uh, we, we are still at the beginning of the journey. Um, but I, I agree with you the way we've built it, or I, I actually, you're not making a statement. You're asking a question. Yeah. I think that, that we have seen just like in any technology wave that the first wave of that is driven by profit motive and, and the ability to disrupt things and, and the consequences Negative consequences in human terms aren't aren't are very hard to anticipate, but are also, um, you know, sort of a second thought in the first in the first wave of use. But I I would suspect that we're still in a area of human harm as a um, byproduct of innovation, and we're we're still having trouble quantifying it. Boy, that's a grim statement. But do you think we'll get past that, or do you think it'll be continued to be driven by profit motive, and we'll only get past it in cases where it's profitable to do so? Um, I I'm optimistic that we'll get we'll get past it, but it could be very ugly before we get past it. Like it's like. The technology waves in the past have been very ugly. Before they got, they got better. I mean, it, it's also a societal change. That it, it's driven by technology, but we're, we're seeing the behavior of people as a whole change as well. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, people change slower than the tech, right? That's what what we end up saying over and over again with a lot of this. I, um, I don't know if people change slower than the tech. I, okay. I I would say more that the change becomes, in people, becomes apparent slower than the change in tech. That by, by the time we notice that something 
or some societal change is detrimental it in people it, it tends to be already too late and look, look at facebook <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah we're definitely full circle yeah i it's I'm thinking about like how evolution works, right? Where, um, and I'm not sure that this is the right analogy, but where, where you, people who, you know, it's not people, uh, organisms that can adapt to change circumstance, you know, benefit and ones that can't, you know, disappear from, from the environment. Um, so I, I, that statement makes me nervous. Although yeah. I think I think it isn't necessarily the ability to adapt. Although those pre organisms that can adapt have some advantages. It's the ability. It's having traits or the ability to acquire traits that meet the new conditions, right? So you could you could have an exist. You could you know you could have a change to the environment that negatively affects a bunch of organisms in the ecosystem but not others and those others don't have to change um so so part of part of this is sort of luck of the draw um uh but anyway but i think uh i you know i think all of this is the, the all of this with evolution it it comes down to if you have situational awareness and you can adapt to the conditions you're seeing with that situational awareness, you have a distinct advantage. Um, you start to have that OODA loop, feedback loop that triggers, that gives you some, some advantage. Um, if not, then, you know, that, you know, and that's the red queen, right? That's the whole red queen situation where you have to, con then everybody can adapt at a certain rate. And so you have to adapt at at least that rate in order to be able to survive. But um, there are those that kind of get lucky, <laughs> get yep. luck of the draw. They they land in a situation that's perfect to their their needs and allows them to at least stay steady, if not grow and and thrive. And more often than not, chance is much more important than than adaptability or or, or skill. Well, yeah, for Being sure. Being in the right place at the right time. Uh, yeah, because you make a, may make an adaptability decision based on your situational awareness that turns out to be incorrect, right? And so adaptability isn't a panacea by any means. Luck, by I agree totally. Like, mm -hmm. And this is one of the things is to set yourself up to be able to take advantage of what luck you get and being, you know, uh, you know, there's so many organiz organizations and leaders out there that hate the idea of being reactive to change. But to me, that's the advantage is knowing how you can react to different situations ahead of time, but not necessarily taking action until it's time to react to changes that yep. starts to happen. Um, and that's it reminds me of. That's huge. And that's the thing that I see so many organizations struggle with. And, and, and so in the networking world, it's kind of a similar thing, right? Not, not changing everything about how you work your network in anticipation of 
of a something that's going to happen. Like let's just take growth, for instance, like network usage growth, right? Not necessarily installing everything you need for some dream target load that you're going to have, but setting yourselves up so that you can acquire equipment and upgrade the the, the bandwidth and the and the performance of your network as the need is clear and as you have near-term prediction of what you're going to need in that short term, right? Those companies have, I think, a distinct advantage over those that say, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to build, you know, this incredibly high-speed network in anticipation of, you know, this new product having success or something like that. I mean, like uh, OpenStack? Um, but the, yeah, I mean, I know, but, you know, but, sorry, I mean, but certainly the clouds give you that advantage, right? Like if I'm using a public cloud and I don't even worried about that equation, I'm like, generally I'm like, okay, yeah, whatever network I need, I'm going to get it when I don't need that network. I'm, I'm not going to generally pay for it. Um, or I might reserve a chunk of stuff, but I, I can add to that chunk of stuff pretty easily. Um, and so, yeah, but, but the, you know, being adaptable, I definitely agree with that. Um, like there, there's no amount of planning and, and, and contingency. Contingencies is, is going to protect you from, from the from future issues. Like, and that, that, there's a reason why, why the, the, the saying goes like, no, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Right. Um, like it's, um, you, you have to, but you, you you can you can have your methods for uh, for for managing contingencies, mm -hmm. but that yeah that there's as you said like that there's always the the the, the chance there that, that that there's something unforeseen and, and you have to have the the flexibility or, or malleability to to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a it's it's an interesting balance because you can't have infinite flexibility and chase. You can't you can't always be chasing. You have to be you have to figure this figure it out. You said I, I think this but, is the, to me what strategy is when it comes to technical technology planning. Strategy is setting yourselves up with the mechanisms by which you can react a number of different ways to a number of different situations. So that may mean acquiring equipment ahead of time and having it ready. But, um, but it's about, you know, having the strategies to be able to have situational awareness and react to what you, what you see um, and be able to, with a little more effort, a little more cost, be able to change the tactics you're using in reactiveness as, as you learn more and more information. Yeah. It, it's the difference between so, being opinionated and being stubborn, right? And, and that's the <laughs> exactly. I think that's a that's a great statement. Where we see that in software development and supply software supply chains all the time, right? Which is people who are stubborn about the technologies that they're going to use, about the processes that they use, about the metrics that they measure themselves by. Um. Having a heyday and then beginning to to be a problem for the organization in the longer term, um, whereas organizations, the teams that are much more sort of like, hey, we are constantly trying to learn, right? This you know this is all kind of old mm -hmm. stuff, but it, that we're constantly trying to learn. We're constantly trying to change our practices as we learn. We're, we're trying to be situationally 
aware of all the factors that that affect the way that we should behave and operate. Um, those organizations are surprising, right? Because they'll come in and um, I, I think one of the things that's happening right now that's really fascinating is this balance that's starting to happen between we can't build everything ourselves. Each team can't build everything entirely from the ground up themselves, right? As, as an organization, that becomes a really costly thing in terms of both conflicts and uh, in terms of uh, you know, operational conflicts and in terms of cost. But um, at the same time, we can't lock everything down so that everybody does everything exactly the same way. And so finding that balance, finding a way to kind of provide economies of scale of common elements, but allowing people to, um, you know, as you say, sort of, you know, have an opinion within that context individually um, is sort of the, the direction that everybody's trying to figure out right now. And again, public cloud has some advantages, but if you have to run on multiple public clouds, the public clouds aren't working together in a way that that so you end up having different implementations yeah. of clouds, which is where, you know, again, that's where VMware's strategy is basically to say this isn't that's not going to work for companies. They're going to need ways to kind of address this that are independent of those the clouds, even if they're mostly focused on one cloud. The point chain. And so, supply chain and complexity. Yep. Yeah, and, supply and chain just, huge. But I, I see that's a later topic for a later date. So we can go. <laughs> wow. There are so many things and aspects to think about in how we build technology. And frankly, I can feel very powerless as we as we make all these pieces go. But it's important to think through what is going to happen in the future as we make these changes. And as we were saying, be ready for the change, but not following every change. Uh, and that is exactly the type of advice you can take to the bank as you build systems. Thanks. And please join us at the 2030.cloud. I would love to hear your opinions during these sessions and see what you think and how you would shape and influence technology. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.